Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is our new morning, morning Joe approach. We have not done one of these morning sessions. Um, we decided to try every now and again doing something for our international community, um, which is getting bigger. It's you know pretty much everything that we do in the afternoons or evenings doesn't work for them. Um, you know, they have to listen to the recording or wake up at four in the morning. So every once in a while, we're gonna start pinging in some of these, what, what's morning for me, um, afternoon, midday for some of our international groups. So welcome everybody. If you're new to this, this is a, a thing that we started well over a year ago when COVID came down as a way to just hang out. Um, I had no idea it would be going this long. And so, um, we're still kicking, so to speak. So the great thing about this for me is I don't have to prepare. That's my favorite part. I show up, um, I usually have a couple of comments. Sometimes I don't have anything. I just turn right to the questions. So this is a place for you to ask your questions. Some really good ones came in. I will turn to those first, the really good written questions. Um, but if you have something live, want to raise your hand, anything is game on this. This is an open free, free I was gonna say free for all. This is a free for all. We can talk about whatever we want. But what I do do on occasion, and I'm gonna do that today, just to launch a little bit of conversation and sometimes it, it, it triggers some discussion is I often will share a little bit of what I was just working on previous to coming on. So every morning I write, I get up super early and uh, I do my morning meditation. And then I come down to my little nerdy study and I write. And so this morning I was doing some editing on this book I'm writing, some of you know it, um, tentatively entitled, okay, I'm mindful, now what? <laughs> Exploring the wonders of the mind. It's a constructive criticism, a critique of the mindfulness revolution, pointing out the limitations of, of mindfulness and then, okay, now what, what's next? And so um, this morning I was editing this section, I'll read just a couple pages. This is part five. It's a relatively short book, um, 60,000 words, which is not super long for a book. I wanted to keep it really tight. I actually wanted to keep it like at 30,000 words, but I, I just can't help myself. So this is part five on outside support. So I thought it would read just a little bit as a way to uh, also allow people to trickle in, see if this lands with you. We can talk about this or anything else. So this is what I was editing this morning. This section may surprise some meditators who think that meditation is capable of handling everything. I know a lot of people who have that <clears throat> kind of attitude. Sometimes people swing the pendulum too far back in the other direction from an initially dismissive attitude towards meditation to one that views it as a panacea. They go from one extreme to the other. But the trick is to find a middle way, a balancing point that honors the strengths of meditation. So let me say one thing about the way I write. <clears throat> I'm reading this from a hard copy. So what I do when I'm writing, those of you who are writers, you know this, the essence of writing is rewriting. Anybody who tells you the writing is easy is a liar <laughs> or a really bad writer. And those of you who know this, you know writers, you're going, oh yeah, this is a lot of work. And so what I do um, is I write, really rewriting, I write, rewrite, 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 rewrite five, 10 times in electronic form. And then to get a totally different lens on it, I always print it out, hard copy. And then before I pitch it um, to a publisher, which I'm in the process of doing now, I always do a hard copy printout. 
And it's amazing, you know, I think it's like, okay, electronically, but when I see it actually in print, it's like, boy, Jesus, this still needs some serious work. So that's what this is. This is the printout of this manuscript. And so that's why I'm actually reading it. <clears throat> that's just the way I work. So the trick is to find the middle way, a balancing point that honors the strengths of meditation, but also admits its limitations. Without this balancing act, we can fall prey to issues like escapism and meditative bypassing. The bypassing occurs when meditation is used as a conscious or unconscious exit strategy from everyday emotional and psychological issues. I see this all the time. And I actually look very closely at my own experience, like, okay, what am I not seeing? What are my blind spots around this? Um, spiritual materialism, Trungpa Rinpoche talked about this almost 50 years ago. Spiritual bypassing, a term coined by John Wellwood. Meditative bypassing, I just run a little bit with that idea. You know, the notion that it's super easy to use these things just as a way to escape. I mean, Almas, the great physicist who turned into um, the kind of psychological spiritual teacher, a good one, actually. Um, he says, you know, when we, most people set out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven. It just, you know, FedEx, get me out of here. <clears throat> so to continue, uh, my own path, as well as working with countless students over the decades, it's not a matter of if you will be afflicted by these bypassing disorders, but when. Psychiatrist and meditation teacher, um, Roger Wall, she's a good friend of mine. He's a really amazing guy, professor, PhD, MD, um, really dear friend. This is what he says. So Roger Wall says that 80% of the issues he sees in his personal sessions with meditation students are more the work of a therapist than a meditation instructor. Totally my experience. If meditation really is a laxative, so what, this is a riff on something I wrote earlier in the book, Trump and Bichet's famous statement, you've heard it, meditation is not a sedative, it's a laxative. Genius, genius. If meditation really is a laxative, this should come as no surprise. The question then becomes, what do we do with all this crap? Do we bear down and try to meditate it out of our lives or do we open up to other skillful means? I see this problem all the time. People have been meditating 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They're having issues. They go see their MI, their teacher, whatever. And they say, oh, you need to meditate harder. You need to do this, you need to do that. And because I'm traveling now um, extensively in repeating locations where I've taught, um, I will see people I've seen 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I am not kidding. They'll pull me aside during a break or whatever, and, and they will share the exact same issue they had three decades ago. And I'm a little bit more, you know, if they really want my advice, I'm a little bit more assertive now saying, try something else. Meditation will not solve everything. Theoretically, yes, emptiness can handle everything. Yes, in theory, uh, you know, get back to me how that works for you. Um, practically speaking, doesn't seem to work that way. Very, very rare. In fact, I've never seen it. Uh, okay, so when you relax and open up in meditation, all kinds of repressed material comes up and witnessing it is not enough to resolve the upheaval. This is why parenthetically, why mindfulness is not enough. Mindfulness sedates, it does not liberate. And so even the fruition of mindfulness, which are the jhana states, this is why the Buddha left his principal teachers. They, they at, the, at the time of the Buddha's teaching, he did not invent mindfulness, by the way. He in, invented insight, Vipassana. 
because he discovered by studying with the teachers of, of his age, the, the highest level of teaching they could give him were these absorption states, these jhana states. It, that does not liberate, it sedates. So it pacifies, but it, it pacifies the arising, but it doesn't work with what caused the arising in the first place. And so this is a colossal limitation of the whole mindfulness thing. So I, I, I unload on this with some rigor in this book because this, this is a big trap of the mindfulness revolution. If you only observe it as meditation often exhorts, the material may not get digested. It will then recycle back into the unconscious mind and continue to express itself symptomatically. To digest the mater this material, you have to go into these shadowy elements to feel them fully, relate to them properly, and process them completely. The contemporary psychotherapist, Rob Priest, this guy's cool, he's written a couple books. One's called The Psychology of Tantra. Um, the other one's called The Wisdom of Infraction, um, The Challenges of Individuation in Buddha's Life. He's a really cool guy, a deep Jungian depth psychologist kind of dude. And the more I tell you, the more I study Carl Jung, whoa, what a mind, what a, what a genius this guy was. And so Rob, his books are pretty good, actually. Um, he's another one in the family, like John Wellwood, Almas, Mark Epstein, Ken Wilber. Um, there's a handful of other, uh, Bruce Tift, really gifted people that work very deeply in the arena of psychology and spirituality. So Rob is one. Um, so this comes from his book, uh, Psychology of Tantra. While traditional teachings speak of insights and realizations experienced on the path, it is seldom made clear that these insights often come through pain and turmoil, <laughs> end quote, which means feeling the squeeze. Remember, uh, it helps to remember no pressure, no diamond. We sometimes have to break down before we can break through. So just a little bit more and then we'll, we can just open this up. But I will come back. Um, when I was editing this today, I was thinking, I, yeah, I think this is really important stuff. So when we come back again, uh, next week I'm out of town. Um, but in two weeks when we come back, I'm gonna continue with this rant riff because again, I, I think this is uber important stuff but just a little bit more. Let's take the experience of anger. So earlier in the book, I talked a little bit about anger. So I re re returning to that um, primary emotional poison or what's called klesha. In many spiritual and meditative communities, anger is anti-meditative or anti-spiritual. There is much traffic with being politically correct or PC these days, but not much time spent on the silliness of being spiritually correct. <laughs> is my neologism, my new word. Instead of being PC, we are too obsessed with being SC. Being SC expresses itself in the folly of being Zen instead of being mad, when getting mad is sometimes the proper response and getting Zen is classical spiritual bypassing. I'm telling you this from personal experience. You know, I, I worked in a, in a, in a situation where one of the, my colleagues once um, actually kind of unloaded on me. You know, I was dealing with a, a, a client patient who was pretty unworkable and um, kind of like really just really off. And so I, I had to be really quite firm with this person. And later this person, this other, my colleague pulls me aside and he goes, you know, that wasn't very Zen of you. And, and yeah. I was like, dude, I mean, like what, first of all, what does that even mean? Um, and so this is just, it's just like a ridiculous way of, 
negating the power of anger and sometimes that energy incisive anger it's actually in the classic tantric teachings it's what's called the fourth karma where you go through four stages of progressive actions parenthetically somewhat ironically named four actions that don't create karma because they're pure so even anger has this type of purity <clears throat> and uh and so the reason I mentioned this is, and I'll, I'll have a supporting quote from uh, Robert Masters here, that, you know, in so many communities these days, oh, you know, that's not Zen of you if you express your anger. I mean, like, you don't want to know what I said back. I wasn't very Zen. <laughs> okay, so sorry, I got to chuckle at this a little bit. So Robert Masters, who wrote this book, um, uh, Spiritual Bypassing, he runs with John Wellwood's original term. <clears throat> to tell students, so this is him, to tell students that directly expressing anger, regardless of how it is expressed, is not a good thing, as some teachers are inclined to do, is a disservice to their students. And we then muzzle and mute their anger in the name of spiritual correctness. Believing they are sitting with their anger when in fact they're sitting on it, they're repressing it. The relationship between spiritual teacher and student can easily fall into codependency, unacknowledged painful, uh, I'm sorry, unacknowledged uh, parent-child transference issues, or even cultism. And so um, I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to mark this for next time, because I want to continue sharing some of this stuff with you, um, because I personally think it's super important. Um, so there's more to say, but what this will turn into is a little bit of an endorsement. That's where I'm going with this. Um, for therapy. Honestly, really, everybody needs therapy. <laughs> everybody needs therapy. Spirituality is, is just, you know, a higher bandwidth on this spectrum of healing and holding. And so to think that, you know, somehow, you know, if there's somebody out here who's had experience, you know, with meditation handling everything, I would love to talk to you. It just doesn't seem to work that way. In fact, I've had, I tell you this, when I first started teaching on this stuff, I had a number of people come up to me after my presentation, really kind of irritated at me, you know, saying, ah, I don't agree with you. You know, we don't, you know, Buddhism doesn't need therapy. That's my little double entendre. Buddhism doesn't need this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, how about all the scandals that are happening with so-called Buddhist masters, right? So don't get me started on that one. But anyway, that's my little ref for today. <laughs> A little bit earlier than Norma, so I'm more spunky today. I have more energy. I hope it's okay. <laughs> Usually you get me around two o'clock when I've been up for like eight hours and I'm already a little shagged. So um, some really great questions came in today. Uh, as usual, these questions are so cool. It's my favorite part by far. And so I'm going to ping through these. And then um, for those of you who are listening, you can enter one in the chat column. Or it's always, always, always best if you just raise your hand and come on live. Um, so that I can engage in some conversation. Because some of these questions, in fact, there's one here, I'm gonna turn it back to the whoever wrote it. I'll give you the name when I get to it um, because I really couldn't decipher it. Um, so anyway, let me start. And then um, anybody who wants to add something, it doesn't have to just be a question. It can be an offering. Um, I love when people share a poem, a story, put a post in the chat box. It's not just about me, it's about us sharing our collective um, wisdom together, our collective experience. So think of it more as like a little chat, chat room thing. Okay, so this is from Eris. So hi, Andrew. 
I listened to the interview with Claire Johnson. That's the most, I think it's the most recent one we posted. Yeah, about transforming nightmares. She's a rock star. I love this gal. <clears throat> it was inspiring and insightful. Thank you. Uh, Claire talked about yoga nidra and going into wild, uh, wake, it's actually wake initiated lucid dreaming, not wake induced, uh, wake initiated lucid dreaming. Can you explain the wild technique? Yes, I can. And uh, what is your experience with yoga nidra? I'll tell you. And what is your experience with yoga nidra and wild? I'll tell you that as well. So wake initiated lucid dream, the term, the acronym, and it is kind of wild. This comes from my dear friend, Stephen LeBearer. She talked about two principal ways to work with lucid dreams. D-I-L-D, dream initiated lucid dream, and W-I-L-D, wake initiated lucid dream. Um, and again, in his genius, this is really this is really the two ways to do it. So most of our lucid dreams are dream initiated lucid dreams, dialed, which means something in the dream will clue you into the fact that you're dreaming, hence dream initiated. A dream sign, something weird, something will click into the dream and you go, oh my gosh, this must be a dream. I would say in my experience, 95%, you know, just shooting from the hip or more, probably more like 98%. Of people when they initiate lucidity, they initiate it through dream initiated lucid dream techniques. But there is this thing called wake initiated. And so, what this means is instead of popping consciousness within the dream, <clears throat> you bring consciousness with you from the waking state into the dream. This is a lot harder for most people. Um, for most people, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to lose it. It's not that terribly difficult to do it with liminal dreaming. And that's where this ties into yoga nidra. So um, explain wake initiated lucid dreaming. It's just that you do something that allows you to bring a thread of consciousness, awareness, lucidity with you as you actually fall asleep. It's like the analogy I use of the dimmer. You know, you're, you're actually just dimming consciousness and maintaining lucidity. The, the principal way to do that as a technique is through the lotus visualization that I write about in my book. And that I riff a lot. You do the throat visualization, you step yourself down. It's like almost like a form of um, self-hypnosis that kind of drops you into the dream state with some lucidity. Not easy to do, but with some training, you can do it. And so how this connects to yoga nidra. So yoga nidra, nidra is a Sanskrit word for sleep. It is not the same as sleep yoga in Buddhism. It's not. So even though literally it's, it's sleep yoga, it's not sleep yoga the way the Buddhists define it. Um, yoga nidra is more really like liminal dreaming, which is maintaining, you know, through a process of progressive relaxation, super skillful stuff. It's a way for, for profound relaxation. And if you're really um, savvy with it, yes, you can use yoga nidra as a kind of an off ramp into mostly liminal dreaming. And then if you're really gifted at it, actually into lucid dreaming. Um, so I've had experiences uh, with both, uh, wake initiated lucid dream through yoga nidra, a little bit with that, um, but mostly with that liminal space, kind of the pre-dream space. I've definitely had some experience with that. Um, where I would go for this, Eris, um, if you wanna learn more, is uh, Jennifer Dumper's book, liminal dreaming that's what it's called she has a couple chapters about yoga nidra there and actually some guided yoga nidra um, practices that's usually the way the practice is done is actually as a guided meditation 
So if you want to unpack this more, Eris, go, go get Jennifer Dumper's book uh, called Liminal Dreaming. She riffs on this uh, a fair amount. Okay. Okay, from Kara, uh, or Kara, sorry, Kara or Kara. Apologize for my mispronunciations. I want to examine what I think was a nested lucid dream with you. Uh, okay, um, let's see what you mean by that. And the role of ego. I woke up and knew that I was awake in my dream. Cool. I said so directly to others in the dream, but soon suspected that it was not true lucidity because at another level, I understood that I was dreaming and that I was lucid. <clears throat> I was embarrassed. <laughs> Why? There's nobody there. <laughs> See, dreams are revelatory, right? I'm playing with you a little bit. Hope that's okay. I didn't feel my normal electrical buzz <clears throat> when I became lucid, <clears throat> excuse me. I understand that the ego fears lucidity because of the dis dissolving of the ego. Uh, not quite true, um, but let me finish your question then I'll unpack this. I understand that the ego fears lucidity because of the dissolving of the ego, but where is the ego in lucidity? And what is that part of my consciousness that is watching me dream that I am lucid? Is nested dreaming just the ego coming in and stopping lucidity? And where does the ego go when I become lucid? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by a nested dream. Um, when I hear that term, I think of what's, what's called recursive dreams or dreams within dreams. So maybe that's what you're talking about is a recursive dream. Um, so if that's what it is, then maybe we have something to talk about, about here. But here's the, the important thing, uh, Kara, is that the ego doesn't necessarily fear lucidity because the ego is dissolving. Ego is not dissolving in a lucid dream. It's not, it's not. Ego actually dissolves in the liminal space. The narrative structure of ego dissolves in the liminal space, not in lucid dreaming, unless you're doing like stage nine of, of dream yoga. It's only then that ego dissolves. Most of our dreams, ego is back online. The sense of ego is reconstituted. The sense of self and others reconstituted. You don't see the dream as anything but real. That's ego. So the ego um, doesn't, doesn't really go offline in a lucid dream unless you're at the very highest stages of dream yoga when you're actually transitioning into the dissolution altogether that then transitions into full-blown sleep yoga. Um, if you want to riff on this, I always, for those of you who may be new, I always try to connect this to resources. Evan Thompson writes brilliantly about this um, in a deep analytic, um, scientific, philosophical way in his book, Waking, Dreaming, Being. This is a tour de force. Or listen to my interview with him. We talk about this. Where this book is so brilliant because it talks about how the structure of ego comes online, comes offline in all these different states. Um, dreaming, sleeping, lucid dreaming, lucid sleep, dying. It's a, a tour de force uh, uh, um, that talks about all this kind of stuff, including this, this thing that he, he doesn't term it, but he, he references it from the Indian tradition, ahamkara, eye-making. And so when we fall asleep and go through these spaces, we can watch eye-making and eye-breaking. We can see how things come together and how things fall apart. So his book really goes into this stuff. So if you really wanna know this, read this 300 page masterpiece. Um, so ego does not go offline in lucidity. It just doesn't. 
unless you're doing uh, with some very minor um, and rare, if you're having what's called a, uh, not even a dream of clarity, but a dream of clear light, super advanced, highest form of dreaming, um, extremely rare, where there's absolutely no dissolution. There, there's no sense of self and other in the dream. This is like postdoc dreaming. Um, and if you want to learn about that, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, his book, The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. This is the highest form of all dreaming. So that's really rare type of dream. Most lucid dreams, egos online. What is that part of my consciousness that is watching me dream that I am lucid? Well, this is where, again, read Evan's stuff where he talks about the difference between um, dreamer and dreamt and the aspects of self that are actually involved in the dream and what is seeing what. We can have these brief recursive differentiation experiences. That's what I think you're alluding to as, as nesting. We can experience this at any point. These are just more, you know, kind of refined recursive levels of identity. So what, what you could say is, which part of my consciousness that is watching me dream? Well, it's still another form of consciousness. It's just a more refined um, kind of retreated form of awareness. It's still not non-dual pristine consciousness. It's still not non-dual awareness. There's still consciousness, it's called metacognition. It's being aware of awareness. And while that's really cool, it, it's again, it's still not the final step. Um, so last thing is nested dreaming, just the ego coming in and stopping lucidity. Well, it doesn't really stop lucidity. Um, where does the ego go when I become lucid? I, it doesn't go. <laughs> it doesn't go. It's there. If you're seeing the dream as other than you, ego is there. If you're seeing the dream in any way as being real, even a lucid dream, ego is there. So again, just to reiterate, um, lucid dreams are still, ego is still pretty much intact. Uh, unless you're having a dream of clear light, super rare dream, or unless you're having eighth or ninth stage uh, dream yoga. Okay. Um, Andrew. Um, Who's this? Uh, it's me, it's Kara. Oh, okay. I thought I was hearing a voice from the Dharmakaya. <laughs> that could also be true, but not. That could be true too. Okay. Not. Um, so you got it mostly. What I think what I was trying to get at is that, like I've been lucid quite a few times over the past year. Oh. Um, this did not feel like lucidity, even though I knew I was awake. So you did answer that question that the ego doesn't go offline. It just gets meta meta. And, and I was using a term, I was calling it nested because I heard you call it nested in one of the um, webinar series. So I was like, oh, like a nesting doll. Then so that people can have up to seven of these. And yeah. the reason I was embarrassed in the dream is that I was telling everybody, hey, I'm awake. Look at this. Don't you want to do this with me? And nobody gave a shit. And nobody. And I was like, oh my God. And also I knew it was different because I wasn't having that electrical buzz. But I guess what I mean by the ego uh, is that the resistance to, that the, that the only thing I can think of is that the fear, the reason why I'm not becoming really lucid in dreaming more is that my ego is resisting it. No, if that's what you mean, I agree, yes. If that's what you mean, I agree. And, and I think if you were on the webinar yesterday, I talked about this, remember when I was talking about this kind of internal conflict of interest that can sometimes arise? And so if that's what you're saying, absolutely. There, there's part of you, the egoic part of you 
Fed just doesn't want to see the stuff that just doesn't want to go there. So if that's what you're saying, totally agree with you. And so therefore, even that is revelatory, right? So even that so-called failure, that's the cool thing about this stuff. There are no failures here. Even the failures are revelatory because they will reveal to you where you're stuck or where a particular habitual pattern is still super grooved. And so again, this is one reason dream yoga is a bit advanced because people don't want to be so exposed or in your case, yeah, I love what you said, you know, embarrassed. That's like beautiful. I love it. Right. <laughs> but what you're saying there is absolutely spot on there. There's there, the egoic part of you uh, does not want to go into these deeper domains because there's no room at these le higher levels for personal identity. Ego doesn't fit in here. It's like, you know, Trump Rinpoche said famously, ego can't attend its own funeral. And so you're heading towards the funeral with these practices. Um, and so that part, totally agree. But so what is that? What is that? So instead of becoming really lucid, I was telling people that I was lucid. So what is that little switch of the ego that says, I'm going to watch myself say I'm lucid and know that I'm not? Like, what is the part? It's just a different, finer ego coming in there? I think, so. I think so. It's a little homunculus thing. You know, it's just like this, again, this kind of little recursive sense of identity. But again, just like you're saying, as long as there's still a sense of, of me perceiving that, uh, me being conscious of that, you're still within the realm of ego. It's just yeah. another, it's like what you said was beautiful, meta, meta, meta. It's just another awareness of awareness. That in itself, you know, it's super interesting <clears throat> and potentially it's fundamentally liberating. But um, in and of itself, as long as there's still duality being experienced, <clears throat> you haven't transcended it yet. Okay. Yeah, Thank great you. story. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Okay. From Joanna P. Okay. Is the truth much simpler than we can perceive? <clears throat> uh, I'm going to answer kind of these as I go along because some of these are longer. Um, is the truth much simpler than we can perceive? Well, uh, more than we want to perceive. It, it, it's incredibly simple, easier. You know, um, <clears throat> what we're looking for, Joanna, is, I'm no kidding, it's hiding in plain sight. You know, they say in the Mahamudra tradition, famously, it's so obvious we don't see it. It's so simple, we don't believe it. It's so easy, we don't trust it. So really, on one level, in fact, the more advanced the teaching gets, the simpler it is. As you may know in your experience, the more advanced the teaching is, the less there is to say. So when you teach Mahamudra Dzogchen, the highest, highest teachings in, in the Tibetan Buddhism, you know, there's hardly anything to say. The shortest teaching in the Mahayana, <clears throat> what called the, the, the Heart Sutras, there's the Sutra in 25,000 verses, <clears throat> they get shorter and shorter, shorter to the Heart Sutra. And then the irreducible expression of the Prajnaparamiti teacher teachings is the letter A. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So yes, it's simpler than you will ever imagine. And one day when you have that recognition, it's actually quite common for people to have this like, oh my gosh, can it really be that simple? I, I, I really listen to what I'm saying here. Can it really be this obvious? Can it really be this simple? Yes, it is. Okay, back to you. And why does it sound so complicated? It's only complicated from the ego's perspective. It's not complicated, it's super simple. All these complexities, the 84,000 dharmas, the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha taught, 
they all came about merely as a way to match the complexity of the modern minds. <laughs> it, it just is like, you know, you you know, the teacher and, and some of them have tried it. Um, a lot of masters when they first come to the West they have this kind of Nike approach, right? Just do it. Doesn't work, right? They can come in and just say, ah, right? That's it. That's all they have to say. Ah, uh, okay, but, right? Not enough there to chew on. So all the teachings are complicated to match the skillful means. You know, um, skillful means means meeting people where they're at, not where you're at. So the teachings are complicated because we're complicated. Really? You will discover this on your path. Okay, back to you. For example, is meditation a state of hypnosis? No, it's a state of dehypnosis. We're hypnotized. Meditation dehypnotizes. But back to you. Is meditation a state of hypnosis really for that there are quite simple steps not requiring vast amounts of teachings and it's available to all for free because it's our innate nature in that case yes you don't have to do anything really in fact i sometimes i i, I tongue-in-cheek used to say um really when people used to ask me oh geez you're a meditator you belong to the center what do you guys do at your meditation center i often used to say well you know we do nothing <laughs> But, but we do it really well. <laughs> it's really hard to do nothing well. We're not human beings, we're human doings. So all these doings, all these dharmas, they're matched, they're there to match human doers, not human beings. So fundamentally, um, it's incredibly simple. Last one from you, if emptiness is our nature, why is it so complicated to teach it? Um, because ego doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> ego doesn't want to hear it. It just doesn't. So there's a lot of, you know, there's this internal conflict of interest going on. You know, there's part of you that doesn't want to hear this stuff because it, there's, again, no room for personal identity, no room for ego in this stuff. Okay. Oh, here's a comment from Joanna. Is it the same Joanna? At the very bottom. Uh, this is my recent discovery. Everyone needs therapy even more than hypnotherapy where one can address the subconscious, not surface only. Totally agree. Totally 100% agree. Okay. Uh, okay, Tim. So Andrew has previously mentioned the three-year retreat he attended and how it produced great benefit. Can you share more about that and how to possibly attend one? Okay. Did you stay at a temple or a center for the whole three years or did you come commute some of the time? <clears throat> Was that not extremely difficult? Having a dental practice, yeah, it killed everything, basically. I'll tell you about that. Do you think this is an experience we could duplicate at home? Nope. Or would that be much too difficult? Yep. Next question. <laughs> this is what happens when you get me early in the morning. I'm frisky. Uh, you know, Tim, I will speak a little bit about it. Um, on my main site, I wrote it right. The first thing I wrote before I started to become a writer, a fake writer, I tried, but I'm still a fake writer. The very first piece I wrote, um, I, I think you'll find it on my main site. Um, it's called From Rocks to Rubies, Rocks into Rubies, Rocks into Rubies. It's about my experience in three-year retreat. So I will refer you to that because I have like, you know, 20 pages on that. But I will say a little bit about it. Um, yeah, it was the most important thing I've ever done, hands down. Uh, it cost me everything. I lost my marriage. I lost my job. I lost my house. I lost everything. It was like dying. Um, 
but you know, pardon the rebirth thing, you know, reborn, it was the most profound thing I ever did. I, by dying before I died, um, I, you know, I saw more about myself in those three years than my entire life. So it's absolutely the most important thing I've ever done. It was a, a unique construction. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche designed it. <clears throat> it was actually a five-year retreat. One year in, one year out, one year in, one year out, one year in. And so it was brilliant because these practices come. A lot of reasons uh, people do two, three-year retreats is because you think you got a lot of time in three years. These practices come so fast. There's so many of them that you can hardly keep up. You can't process it. And so the genius of the way Trungpa Rinpoche designed it is you're in for a year, you come out, you mix your meditation with your life. You know, this is the commuting thing. When I was in there, no commuting, it was a lockdown. We are in a walled compound, shut off from the world, total isolation. So there was no commuting there. There was just a commute for each year. Um, and so the year out allowed me to digest, incorporate, stabilize what I had experienced in the year in. And it allowed me to prepare for the upcoming year. So it was a five-year retreat, by far the best thing I've ever done. I stayed in a meditation center in the wilds of Northern Canada. Uh, was it difficult? Yeah, that's why I wrote my first book, The Power and the Pain. <laughs> there was more pain than power. It was a, it was a detox, the whole thing. That's, I wouldn't say the whole thing. The first four months, three months were extremely difficult for me. Um, it was a detox. I felt like I was in a detox. I've never been an addict, <clears throat> but I realized and I write about it in my book, Power and Pain, this chapter on substance abuse, that I, I am a substance abuser. I abuse form. I abuse thought. I abuse matter. And so it was a really powerful um, 12, kind of 12-step detox program, really. Uh, can you duplicate this at home? No, you can't. That's not to say that what you do at home isn't valuable. It's super valuable. But three-year retreat, super sequestered, sequestered, super formal. I was a monk with shaved head, robes, the whole thing, all the vows. You can't do that at home. Um, yeah, so I, outside of that, Tim, I, read the article I wrote. Um, my first real thing that I started writing called Rocks into Rubies. It's on my site. I talk a little bit about it there. Okay. All right. Let me get a live one from Deborah. She's been waiting. And then there's a couple of more good ones written and I'll come to them. Hi. 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 I haven't seen you in a long time. Um, I just, I want to go, um, something that I was thinking about the other day about ego and is the truth easier than we think it is I um, was listening, I was on a different um, site and a live webinar and some, and, and we were talking about um, total relaxation, sort of the, you know, the somatic descent that you have referred to from Reggie Ray. And, and one of the listeners said, um, if we, if we um, let our, energy our attention melt into the earth which is sort of you know what he says and you let it melt into the earth aren't we polluting the earth aren't we aren't we letting all our negatives and i've heard this question before and um i i mean it's it's you know i mean we think badly of ourselves so you know that's that's the shame of that question oh i love it um, that's 
<laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Continue. Go ahead. No, that's okay. Um, but I realized at that, you know, he, the teacher gave an answer, a response to that. But what I realized is that in our practice, we're not by by learning to be of big mind and to be non-dual with we already are and so the meditation is just a recognition that we already are Um, but the ego gets in the way by thinking things like this like we're polluting or we're causing trouble or whatever anyway i just wanted to share that it was a it was a, a really nice revelation for me that it's recognition more than doing anything that isn't already that's, there that's exactly right yeah it sounds like chris wallace's stuff um that's absolutely right you know that's the fundamental you just nailed it deborah i mean you just nailed it um the number i mean is when people ask me or sometimes i'll, I'll say you know the, there's the irreducible instruction the only thing you have to do is relax that's it right because the right. nature of the mind is already pristine, pure. The nature of reality is already dualistic. How can you attain something you already have? You Stop. already have. Striving is 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 contraindicated. Trump said striving at these levels is the only obstacle. But you know, right. with that said, you have the whole relativity thing. So I, I will, I'm just throwing into the mix that everything you say, 100% agree with it. That the nature of reality is non-dualistic. There's only nirvana. There's only truth. Samsara is partial or no recognition of nirvana. And that in itself is a colossal um, thing to assert and, and to really deeply understand in terms of right view, because it informs the entirety of the path. It's all about relaxation and opening. And so there's so much to say here. In fact, maybe I'll riff on this at some point here. I write about it in the book, the two ways to look at, the, at meditation. One is a more relativistic way of acquiring training. I'm going to achieve mindfulness, I'm going to achieve inside all these things. Well, that's a relative way. The, the more absolute way, like this person is saying, which is so spot on, it's a process of discovery. You don't have to attain these. They're, they're already within you. You have to actualize them. And so recognition is everything. It's like, you know, there's bad book of the dead, right? Recognition and liberation are simultaneous. It's the highest form of liberation. In, in, in Buddhism, it's called Sahajayana, the highest vehicle. It even transcends Vajrayana, the vehicle of self-liberation based on recognition. So everything you're saying, 100% agree. However, with that said, somewhat akin to you know, meditation versus therapy, these are absolute level teachings. And it's very easy to fall into absolutism, thinking that somehow that can supersede everything. Theoretically, it can, practically, doesn't seem to work that way. And so therefore you have all these relative skillful means, you have the entire 84,000 dharmas, you have all the meditations and in the spirit of integral approaches, which I'm a huge fan of, you have shadow work, you have therapy, you have body work, you have all these other aspects, upayas to work with the spectrum of our being. You're not putting all your eggs in one absolutistic basket. And this is a problem. I am doing them all. Awesome. Awesome. So anyway, thank you for that offer, Deborah. I love it. Thank you so much. 100%. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, well, and you're not going to pollute the earth. That made me chuckle. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to pollute the earth. Do what Reggie said. Yeah, do the descent thing. Um, do your Vajrasaf or whatever. You're, the Mother Earth can totally handle this, right? First of all, it's empty, so right. it's, like it's holding right. it. 
So better to think of, you know, sending that into the earth than sending real pollution into the world by not doing this, right? That's real pollution. <laughs> oh, I love this. This is great. Maybe we should do more of these more often when I'm more awake. I'm more chipper in the morning. Okay, from Robert. I have a, I have a kind of question about the headless meditation. Ooh, I love this practice. Yes. Um, but also, could you say more about your feeling experience of it? I can. I love this practice. Um, so let me go through it, and then I'll run my riff. I enjoy this experience very much, and it's a new and recent experience for me. It's a relief to get rid of my brain. <laughs> no kidding, huh? For any moment. <clears throat> I find sometimes I do it in one place, or if I'm walking. That's usually the way I do it as well, Robert. Um, I can really connect with bringing an object to my shoulders. I'll explain this meditation for those of you who don't like know what this really weird thing is Robert's talking about. Um, I can really connect with bringing an object onto my shoulders. It's like it draws towards me. It's still there and on me at the same time. My body feels all doughy and disconnected from my usual stiffness and clunkiness. <laughs> I love these, I love these questions. Other times, usually after a few attempts, I'm struggling to keep my head off <laughs> so I can put the other thing there and I'm fighting a bit in my mind to do it. Oh, this is hysterical. I mean, this should be like an SNL episode. You know, we need Chad, Andy, Kay. We need, we need to write to SNL and get Chad from SNL to do this. He's my new hero, by the way. I love this guy. <laughs> okay. Um, I find it, I find it, hard to phrase the question, but how long would you have any object rest on you and what processes would you use to reduce the separateness if you get what I mean? Oh, this is hysterical, Robert. I love this stuff. So the headless meditation, actually I learned this from Ken Wilber uh, a number of years ago, <clears throat> my dear bud, when he told me about this book that I had not read called um, by Douglas Harding called uh, something like, what's it called? Oh, Zen and the Art of the Headless, or if Barry, if you're on one of my, my scroller friends, if you can go on, it's, it's Douglas Harding, um, the book on headlessness. I, I spaced the, edu um, the, the title. It's a short little, very quirky book about this guy, Douglas Harding, who goes into the Himalayas and had this, has this really cool experience of like being headless, right? And so when I read it, after I was talking to Ken about it, I started doing this thing and it really connected with me, so to speak, by disconnecting my head. So what do you do? I write about it at some length in my book, Dreams of Light. Um, it's a pretty profound practice because, you know, we can do it for just a second. It, you know, you, you literally just imagine your head is just gone, right? So you're, you're, you're perceiving the world, but there's no reference point. That's the key. It's profound. I mean, even Tolopa, one of the great fathers of Mahamudra, the highest teachings of, of uh, Kagyu Tantric Buddhism says, you know, when the mind is free of reference points, this is Mahamudra. When one has become accustomed to this, the enlightenment unsurpassable has been achieved. Well, what's the principal reference? Body, head, head. And so I do this a lot, you know, literally it's a very powerful contemplation. It's a, you know, you just reflect like head gone, right? And then you just, obviously you're totally faking it, but then you'll, you're kind of looking around and it's just, it, when you really kind of get into it, it's, it's fantastically creepy. It's so awesome. 
where the thing that you previously looked at, now it's sitting on your shoulders, right? So this is what Robert's talking about. It completely invites the dissolution of duality. There's no out there, out there. What used to be the world is now sitting on your, on your shoulders. And so I'll refer you to my book, Dreams of Light, because I have a whole chapter on this, Headless Wonder is the title of the chapter. This is a very profound practice and it's quirky, it's funny, but it's also really deep. And the way I work with it, Robert, is mostly in the way you are intimating. I do the, the quick lop. It's like I put my head in, in the spiritual guillotine and I flash on it. And so, you know, like you're saying, I'll go for a walk and then it's like, okay, head off, right? And so I, you know, then I, I feel enlightened because I don't, you know, it's an interesting play of that. I don't feel this bowling wall on my head anymore. And so like, you know, I'm gone, but there's still a world. And so, um, you know, if you're on Robert and want to say or add or ask anything outside of that, all I can say is continue to do it. Personally, the way I work with it is in the spirit of these so-called more advanced formless practices, short sessions repeated often. That's just my style. Um, I find personally that if I do it for too long, I can't fake it anymore. I just get numb. But I do a quick lop, like Manjushri's blade comes down, whoop, head gone. And then it's a totally, it's a fake it practice. You know, I'm just looking around going, wow, there's still an entire world here, but it's no longer out there. It's resting on my shoulders. It's actually me, right? So it's a real, it's a very powerful practice of non-duality. So read Douglas Harding's book. Um, it's really quirky. It's very fun. It's super hip, um, so to speak. And uh, my book, uh, Dreams of Light, I have a whole chapter on it called Headless Wonder. So thanks for that offering, Robert. That's that's awesome. Andrew, Robert, I saw Robert wrote in the chat. He um, he asked, can you talk about what headroom means too? <laughs> yeah, so this comes, this is the last, this comes from the last section in, in that chapter. Um, with a reference of Trungpa Rinpoche. <clears throat> There's that quote from him, if I have the book here. Oh, I do. Let me pull it. Yeah, this, this reference comes from, give me two seconds. From a line from the Vijadara, Vijadara 137. This is one of the best chapters in the book, if I might say. I think it's super, it's like the, it's like the, highlight of the book in terms of practice. So here, so this is what he's talking about. Okay, so let's see here. Trungpa Rinpoche, the sky turns into a big blue pancake and drops on our head. Our perspective becomes completely different. We are talking about how we can develop headroom. Headroom where the space above us is the important thing. We are interested in how space could provide us with a relationship to reality. That's the key right there. How space can provide us with a relationship to reality. Um, that's it. You know, meditation altogether, habituation to openness, habituation to space, habituation to emptiness. But in this case, specifically, it's a, it's a play on the you know, word headroom where you're just basically trying to ventilate open um, accommodate and mix your mind with space. So that's the reference there that it comes from the Vijadra trying to develop this, uh, yeah, basically headroom, headspace, right? Isn't there an app by that? 40 million, 40 million downloads, 40 million 
downloads, Headspace. But it's about mindfulness. It doesn't even go into this stuff. So I should launch another one, Headspace, the real deal, right? What do you think, Andy? Can we, can we co-op that market? We could swing it. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, okay, we got Joanna. So, um, okay, so here we go from Peter. <clears throat> Hi, Andrew, I'm not sure I totally understand what you meant when you said that even in lucid dreams, the ego does not normally go offline. It doesn't. So does that mean one is still essentially deluded in the lucid dream? Yes, it does. And that's why lucid dreaming is not the same as dream yoga because your still ego is fully operational in a lucid dream. Dream yoga works with emptiness. De dream yoga works to de-reify the ego that is still fully online in lucid dreaming. Absolutely. What then is the real meaning here of lucidity? Lucidity is a code word for awareness. So it's a multivalent term. Here it means obviously you're being aware of a dream when you're dreaming. But awareness in this deeper sense, Peter, is um, awareness that fundamentally um, at the highest stages of the dream space, the dream ego can in fact go offline. <clears throat> and that's when it transitions into dreams of clear light or um, sleep yoga. Okay, and again, if you haven't read it, Peter, Evan Thompson, Waking Dreaming Being, he talks about this a ton, highly recommended. Okay, how are we doing here? Uh, Virginia, a couple of days ago, a couple of Mondays ago, at the guided meditation meeting, you suggested as our homework that we ask ourselves while we meditate where our mind is. Oh, yes. It's a great classic Mahamudra. So this is, those of you who may not have been attending on Monday nights, we do this guided meditation thing. We started it maybe three months ago. And a number of weeks ago, we started a little rant riff on analytic meditation. We started by dissecting anger, and then we started getting a little bit deeper, like dissecting this thing called self, asking the question, who am I? And then in relation to Virginia's, I, another question where analytic meditation progresses into what's called the Mahamudra investigations, really powerful contemplations. Where is mind? So back to you. I've been doing my homework, and as I have looked for my mind during meditation, and have a hard time finding it. Yes, that's what we talked about on Monday, right? If you weren't there, not finding is the best finding. <laughs> it's so perfect. There's nothing there. But that nothingness is not no, it, it's not nothingness, it's no thingness. So you will find nothing, but there's still something there. It's just not a thing. What is it? Light, luminosity, awareness. Back to you. I've also begun to question my thoughts, my emotions, and the distinction between the two. As well, I've wondered what the source of my consciousness is. There is no source. There is no source. Well, let me say that. Uh, oh, let me finish it, and then I'll come back to that. There, there, provisionally, depending on how you're using the word consciousness, there is a source. At an absolute level, if you're, if you're conflating consciousness with awareness, there is no source. It's sourceless. But to continue with you, Wondering what the source of my consciousness is and is that source one and the same for my awareness? I'll get to these. I suppose it's too much to ask you. No, it's not here to define all these terms, but might you offer some advice on how to look at some of these functions? So as to help us clarify in a helpful way how they are working together, which deserves more focus. Great set of questions, Virginia, spot on. 
Oh my gosh, so much to say here. So again, in the spirit of giving you something to work with, this is why maps of the mind are so bloody helpful because the traditions actually have really elegant maps that articulate this whole thing. And so again, you know, to me, one of the most articulate, elegant maps here is the Yogacara. Um, literally insights that come from meditation, hence Yogacara, derived from yoga, derived from direct yogic valid cognition. And so I highly recommend you study the eight consciousnesses. Um, a lot of literature here, again, since I happen to have, oh, what a surprise. I happen to have this book right here <laughs> in this book, Dreams of Light, my latest book. I have two chapters on the eight consciousnesses where I talk about this actually quite a bit. So if, if you haven't read it, that's worth a read. Um, also, Thich Nhat Hanh, Understanding Our Mind, uh, commentary on Vasu Bandhu's treatises on the eight consciousnesses. There's so much on this. Carl Bernholzl has written a ton. You really want to work with this stuff, Yogacara is the place to go because that distinguishes between consciousness and awareness. So, but briefly, just to give you some feedback, consciousness, uh, if you're in contradistinction to awareness, consciousness does have a source. And that source is awareness because consciousness is in fact bifurcated, divided, fractured awareness. That's what consciousness is. So consciousness has a source uh, as the eighth consciousness and as, as basically therefore rising from awareness. Awareness does not have a source. Awareness is sourceless because awareness is the essence of reality. So consciousness has a source because it's dualistic. Awareness does not. Awareness, wisdom is non-dualistic. It does not have a source. It's the essence of everything. It's not, if you're super careful, you can say it's the source, but it, even that is problematic. Um, Robert Thurman talks about this, um, it's really brilliant. Emptiness is not the source, it's the essence. This ties into the earlier comment question about the, the non-duality, the immediacy, the simplicity, that if there was a source, you would think you'd have to go back to some source. No, you don't, because there is no source. Emptiness is the essence, it's not the source. Awareness is the essence, it's not the source. And so therefore that, if you're following it, that empowers the utter immediacy of the whole thing. Right here, right now, it's all right there. You just have to wake up to it. Uh, offer some advice on how to look at some of these functions as to help us clarify in a helpful way. Yeah, study the Yogacara, <clears throat> um, also study, you know, the other one that immediately comes to mind, there's so much literature here. Kempo Rinpoche's um, Progressive Stages of Meditation and Emptiness, <clears throat> very similar to this kind of journey through the mind. <clears throat> These maps are really helpful because they help us understand our experience, right? So you remember the three stages of understanding, experience, realization? Well, it's really important to understand that trifecta because if you have experiences Without understanding, you don't understand what's happening. You don't, well, geez, that was like, what the heck was that? So very often people get it. And in, in, in fact, I, I write about it in my first book, Power and Pain. I've had experiences before I had the proper understanding that became really pretty spooky. Like, what, what the heck is this? I'm losing my mind. Um, it's because I had an experience somewhat, you could say, prematurely um, before I had the proper understanding. So to understand, to retrofit the understanding, study these really elegant maps of which there are many. 
But from a relativistic point of view, construction point of view of ego, the A consciousness are supreme. To go beyond that, then you progress into um, the teachings on Mahamudra, the teachings on emptiness, progressive stages of meditation and emptiness, etc. So Virginia, I would start with that, but so good for you for doing this. I mean, that's really awesome. And so there's one question from Lisa. If you're here, I'm gonna ask you to paraphrase this because it's long labyrinthian and I didn't understand uh, some of it here. So if you're here and can zip line your question to me, I will deal with it. But um, I read this a couple of times and it's like, I don't quite get it. So if you're there and wanna come on and, and talk about what you're interested in, I'm, I'm here to talk it, about it with you, but otherwise at this one, I can't quite tease apart. Are you here? Yes, if you oh, mean- you are. there you are, fire away. Yeah, you, I mean, are, you are destroying my ego because you are the first English speaker who, do, who never understands what I write. <laughs> it's not that I don't understand it, it's just, it's, you know, the term labyrinthian, it, it's very complex and threaded and, and for the purposes of time, I'm going to ask you to just summarize what, yeah. what you want me to take and run with this because it's, it's good stuff. I just need to zip down a little bit. Okay. So I listened to your, your interview with Ellen Wallace and it was, I hope I can, can remember now because uh, I don't have the written thing. I sent it to you. Um, and it was about um, the uh and, and this I have discussed with several Buddhist teachers and monks, and they all said, um, uh, go away with that. You don't understand it, right? Because they are coming from a blue, uh, spiritual dynamics blue um, yeah. mindset. Well, well said, good for you. Yeah. That is and, exactly right, yep. And that is absolute truth telling and not question your ancestors and your teachers and your gurus because uh, everything is set. Yeah, it's like right? ridiculous. Completely agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Uh, though I must say some uh, guys like Mingyu Rinpoche, they are more advanced because they, are, they have grown up with uh, Western thinking. And I think they are more complex, um, especially Mingyu Rinpoche. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and my, my question, to put it shortly, um, is, um, and we discussed this as well, um, about um, evolution and the absolute and the relative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, are the stages uh, containing uh, the states or the other way around? Or are the structures uh, prior or are the, the stages prior? And if I yes. follow the, the Buddhist teaching, the stages are prior and the final state, uh, the enlightenment state is containing everything. The states are prior. The states are prior. The, the, the stages arise within the states. Yes, that's, that's what the Buddhist teachers say as well. But... How, do, how can we tell that? We just look at about 6,000 years of human consciousness development, right? What else can we do? Uh, well, maybe uh, there is something deeper than that. Maybe. 
And Maybe. they all said, no, it's impossible because we reached the final state. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, 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 I love what you're saying there. I'm agnostic on that. And I actually resonate more with what you just said. How do we know? How do we know this is the final final? Who knows? Uh, the Buddha say it's the final final. All the monks you talk to say it's the final final. You know, it's interesting. Another inter uh, teacher to explore here, I mentioned Almas. He's a very interesting guy. And, and every time he writes a book, you know, his next book is about, oh my gosh, I found something more. Or you could say, I found something less. Um, and so I, I'm not, I don't totally track his stuff, but I find that very interesting. And I, here's the way I land on this. Uh, Lisa, I'm, I'm agnostic. I have an open mind on this. I don't know. I mean, I drank the, the Tibetan Buddhist Kool-Aid. I'm a deep student of also Kashmir Shaivism and the non-dual Taoist traditions. I, I love the whole non-duality thing. And it, it makes sense to me that, you know, absolute emptiness, formlessness is the ultimate ultimate. But I, I can't say with total authority. And, you know, if, if someone like the Buddha who proclaims omniscience, that's kind of tautological, you know, I mean, how, how can you say that and know for sure? So this is where, you know, we have to balance um, kind of the Western notions of criticality, um, healthy skepticism with traditional um, acquiescence to proclamations of ultimacy. I'm a little bit more like you. I, while I completely resonate, deeply honor, profoundly respect what all these non-wisdom traditions have to say, because I'm a Westerner, because I'm a little bit more skeptical, bring my scientific lens to this. I, I'm also okay with the open question. And again, this is why I love Evan Thompson's work. He's, a, he's in the legacy, that, the lineage of Francesco Varela, the great neuroscientist, who was a really profound um, proponent of the power of an open question, that it's okay not to know. In yeah. fact, in some ways, it's a whole lot healthier not to know. And so when people kind of bang their fists and profess ultimate you know, absolutistic things like some teachers do, my first thing is, what's the psychological impetus for this certitude? Is it, in fact, are you subtly reifying something as a way to make you certain? Again, I'm open on this. Is that, I, in fact, proclaiming their, their conviction, their ZG, their confidence, their absolute? Maybe. That's beautiful. But I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is an, an answerable question, um, but I'm a little bit more in line with you. I'm agnostic. I don't know. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I, I, it's like, you know, geez, that's nice for you to say that, but you know, just because another somebody else said it, and just because it's been referenced for hundreds of years, I mean, how do we know? So I'll just leave it at that. Um, I'm okay with your question. I'm, I love, I love the the um, approach of not knowing. Yeah, exactly. This is even more more exciting than. Absolutely. Yeah. Beginner's mind. In the Zen, this is where I love the Zen. Speaking of no head, the whole Zen um, you know, tradition of divine ignorance, not knowing, um, don't know mind, you know, the don't know mind. That to me is like, I'm, I'm good with that. And this is why I love also Nagarjuna. So the next time one of these teachers kind of pulls this trick on you, well, maybe remind them that the highest teachings of Nagarjuna, you know, the principles of non-affirming negation non-affirming is the most important thing. It negates, 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 negates. It does not profess. And so leave that non-affirming, bring the non-affirming back in and be agnostic, be open, don't know mind. 
And, and again, there's so much more wonder and beauty and mystery when you have this childlike, okay, well, let's just be open to whatever happens. So I think, you know, for me, it's like such a, there's near enemies, there's, there's promises and perils. There's something really beautiful about certitude and conviction. You know, there's something really quite, you know, like strengthy about that. That's nice. But the immediate massive near enemy is hubris and, and all the shadow sides of certainty that people will fight, yes. die, and kill for, right? It's a closed system, finally. Absolutely. So let's let's be open. Habituation, you know, not only is meditation habituation to openness, it's also habituation to openness in terms of doctrines and teachings and certitude and that sort right. of thing. So to me, it's like, again, the integral perspective, since you're bringing in that thing, bringing in states and structures and being more open. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of integral thinking, integral approaches, because otherwise it's so easy, facile, dismissive to fall into your certainty that you have all this explanatory supremacy. Ah, anytime I hear that, I, I just get a little bored. It's like, really? That's just ego coming back into play, in my opinion. So I agree with you, nicely okay. said. Thank you. Right. Okay, yeah. anything else before we clock out for today? <laughs> Let me look at the chat column. Oh, nice comments. Okay. So is there anything in the chat column, Andy, I need to answer here or are we good? Um, I think I don't really good. generally look at these. Yeah, Joanna said, I think in Hinduism, we have not this, not this. Yeah, neti, neti. Uh, it's the Hindu version of the apophatic way. Absolutely. Please definitely check out Don Hoffman's latest interview. Yeah, read Don Hoffman's book. Um, I probably should start at the top. Uh, I pull most of the chat comments into the document. Oh, did you? Yeah, read his book, The Case Against Reality. It's really good. But again, it's not the complete view. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his work, but it's more, it's, it's a, a repeal, it's not a replace. Um, he doesn't replace it. He, he repeals, he helps repeal materialism uh, it, it doesn't go far enough, in my opinion, but it's brilliant. No, no criticism. It's just brilliant. Okay. All right. The rest of it looks pretty good. Evan Thompson's Waking Dreaming Being. That's there. The rest of it looks good. Thanks, everybody. See what happens when I get up earlier. I'm a little bit more chipper, frisky, humorous. I hope it's okay. Um, we'll do this more often um, to... Uh, pay homage to our international community, which is growing in the wonderful Europeans who have to wake up in the middle of the night. Otherwise, you know, they don't get a chance to do anything live. So that's why we reinitiated the, the, um, the little reminder emails, um, because we're going to be pinging back a little bit forth, mostly on these Thursday events, um, you know, allowing international people to join us live. So thank you, everybody. It's always great fun. Um, even though I'm gone next week, we will do something. Um, some somebody will show up <laughs> or we'll play an, an interview or something. So even though I'm not here and actually Joseph, my friend, we're doing a thing together. He's also not available. Um, if we don't have a kind of live presentation, there will be some kind of offering so that this kind of constancy will continue. So we do this totally geeky thing now. Everybody turns on their camera. Everybody turns uh, off their uh, mute. So we all have a chance to say goodbye. We wave at each other. Bye-bye. 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 B